These are the things that I learned during the 25th week of 2011, June 19th through June 25th. June 19th, monitoring my GPU via MSI Afterburner. A follow-up from last episode's overheating laptop saga, I found a helpful utility called MSI Afterburner, which discloses a lot of useful information regarding graphics card performance, including temperature and fan speed metrics. Direct from MSI, quote, MSI Afterburner is the most used graphics card software for a good reason. It's reliable, works on any card, even non-MSI, gives you complete control, lets you monitor your hardware in real time, and best of all, it's completely free. Having some insight into when my graphics card was being thermally choked out was really helpful in trying to diagnose and troubleshoot the issue. I think a key thing I learned was how radical the temperature change could be when switching into a game from idle computer utilization. One of the unofficial rules of thumb is to really try to avoid topping 75 to 80 degrees Celsius if you can help it. I distinctly remember my poor old Dell laptop's Radeon HD 4570 card rising into the 85 to 90 degree threshold when games were running. Aside from performance issues, it made the fans run at full blast and run a real risk of destroying components. Not a great place to be. What's scarier is not knowing when you are approaching this unsafe threshold, and this is where MSI Afterburner kicks in. In addition to just passive monitoring, the program also includes some neat tricks regarding voltage and fan control if you are daring enough. Quoting GPUMag.com, a key feature that's often overlooked is the ability to control fan speed. If your GPU is overheating, this is not an issue that you should take lightly, as it can damage and hamper your gaming experience. Afterburner's fan speed control allows you to manually adjust at what temperature fans will spin and at what speed. Of course, you can set it up yourself regardless, although it's recommended to let the software take care of it. I ended up using Afterburner after I was recommended it by a friend who also encountered laptop overheating problems, and he said it would assist in diagnostics. At the time, I was also using a positively ancient temperature monitor utility called Mobile Meter, which at this point is older than time itself in computer years. I believe the latter utility was actually non-functional by the Windows 7 era anyway, so I had to find something much newer and, well, actually working. Of course, other utilities such as SpeedFan exist, which can perform similar fan adjustments, but MSI Afterburner is just another tool in the toolbox, which is graphics-oriented. Afterburner is just as functional and useful today as it was back then, and I still give it two thumbs up. June 20th. Third-party cookies being disabled in Firefox causes Facebook like buttons to infinite loop. In order to dive into this thing learned, I think we should first establish what third-party cookies even are and why they exist. 
Mozilla themselves provide an excellent description. Quote, Third-party cookies are cookies set by a website other than the one you are currently on. For example, CNN.com might have a Facebook like button on their site. The like button will set a cookie that can be read by Facebook. That would be considered a third-party cookie. Some advertisers use these types of cookies to track your visits to the various websites on which they advertise. This is called cross-site tracking. In the modern era, more and more major browsers such as Firefox and Safari are beginning to include intelligent blocking of categorically malicious tracking cookies by default, without necessarily fully saying no to all third-party cookies. The manual option to disable all third-party cookies has existed for a much longer time, and in Firefox, I had this setting enabled in 2011. While there are excellent benefits to disabling these, unfortunately, you can also break a decent amount of functionality on the web by doing so. In this case, as Mozilla hinted, the embedded Facebook like button on third-party articles and websites didn't function properly in this configuration, to such a degree where erratic looping behavior would occur in which small helper windows would endlessly pop up and close when they would normally display for a fraction of a second. The third-party cookie made this function possible, and disabling it invoked chaos. This reminds me of a different time on the internet where interactive like plus one, add to stumble upon, add to delicious, or dig this buttons were infectiously grafted onto every page of the internet, desperately trying to extend view counts. Most of these would work via the mechanism of third-party cookies. Nowadays, I don't see buttons like these nearly as often, or if they do exist, they are instead just generic share links as opposed to more involved, dedicated buttons. Not to mention dig, delicious, and stumble upon are all effectively in the trash bin of internet history anyway. Over time, this problem more or less solved itself by falling out of favor, but it was a bit of a problem in 2011 for my like happy fingers back then. June 21st, live stream audio recording on the Mac. It might sound weird to think of this as a problem now, but in 2011, it was hard to stream something online. In those days, only certain high-profile gaming personalities were streaming on sites like Livestream, Ustream.tv, Own3D.tv, Justin.tv, and the very newly formed Twitch.tv. Fun fact, out of these sites, only Twitch.tv still exists. The others have either since shut down or become other things. To stream to the internet, you first had to figure out what software to utilize. Back then, there weren't a lot of very good options. Modern conventional streaming apps, such as XSplit and Open Broadcaster software, wouldn't debut until 2012, after the concept became much more mainstream given the growing popularity of League of Legends live streamers. Ustream.tv had a truly janky web-based streaming mechanism, which relied on Adobe Flash Player to read your computer's input and output options and attempt to run a broadcast or recording via the browser. I remember it being very unreliable, and often we either couldn't get it to recognize the right inputs, 
where the stream wouldn't work at all for no explainable reason. In comparison, Livestream.com had their own native application called Livestream Procaster, which was better than nothing, I suppose. By modern standards, the program was very bare-bones, offering very little in terms of options other than a few simple input and output settings, with a big Go Live button in the center, taking up most of the window. I found a video from March 17, 2011, detailing the installation and general usage of the utility. Anyways, today's dilemma was how to incorporate the audio component into Livestream Procaster. macOS has always had an interesting idea of how to handle sound, and the built-in options weren't always that helpful, at least in 2011. An excellent application for macOS, known as Soundflower, provided a lot of the missing audio configuration doodads that we required to stream both audio and video at the TV station when we did live shows. For a while, we also needed to use an app called CamTwist to trick the operating system into thinking a second monitor was an available input, which I recall was a gross workaround necessary for Ustream due to its shortcomings. It's possible that we moved to the more put-together live stream so we could drop this workaround specifically. My notes on the ordeal went a little something like this. First, add a camera using CamTwist by designating the second monitor as one, then open Soundflower and set the two-channel audio to line output. If we were using Livestream.com, on the other hand, launch Livestream Procaster, Open the audio mixer and add Soundflower 2 channel. Open audio preferences and toggle between some other output and Soundflower 2 channel audio to make the audio simulcast between the analog cable broadcast and the live stream. If we were streaming to Ustream instead, we'd open up its streaming console and set the inputs to DV video for video and Soundflower 2 channel for audio. In the modern era, all we would need to do is download OBS Studio and go nuts. But in the Wild West days of streaming, we had to do so much more to get everything lined up perfectly. That's the thrill of being on the cutting edge, I guess. June 22nd, the Zune Mini Player can view the current playlist. We're on a roll with old technology this week. The Zune software for Windows is the one and only method of syncing music to your Zune media player. Subsequently, it is also a pretty great all-around music player as well. In addition to a full windowed interface, the Zune software can condense down to a tiny mini player, similar to the iTunes equivalent. This small window can hover over others in a picture-in-picture -picture fashion, taking up less screen real estate while still providing essential playback functionality. What I didn't know until this day was that the player could expand the adjacent songs in an album or playlist if you simply clicked the abbreviated list below the current playing song. Doing so would open up a list of songs you can switch to. What a neat little feature. The entire aesthetic of the Zune software, of course, was ahead of its time, eclipsing even what Apple would come up with in later years. The Zune software generally gave off the vibe of having more fun, displaying a lot of photos and art pertaining to the artist you were listening to if they were big enough. 
Microsoft would iterate on the visual design aesthetics of the Zune and incorporate them into Windows Phone, Windows 8, Xbox, and Windows 10, so this was the start of something that ended up outliving the media player itself. With a little finesse, one can actually still download and install the Zune software on modern versions of Windows and use it even without a Zune device. So if you still have locally downloaded music, give it a try the next chance you get and give the mini player a spin. June 23rd, JavaScript Mouseover Menus. Welcome back to old web design stories. Today I learned how to utilize some pre-built JavaScript to build menus that would display more menu options when a mouse was hovered over them. Again, this was in an era before smartphones and tablets were considered primary browsing devices. So the idea of hovering a mouse over an item falls apart rather quickly when you start thinking about touchscreens. The utility I found and incorporated to achieve the mouse over menus is called the AnyLink JS drop-down menu by Dynamic Drive. It was straightforward and got the job done. The general idea was drop a chunk of code onto your HTML page containing a navigation bar, which then referred to some categories in a separate file which defined the sub-items of the hover menu. From there, you can deploy at scale. Accomplishing this came in handy for my summer job where I was rebuilding websites for the student involvement office, most of which contained a high amount of layered navigational elements. What was also important was that this all validated against the World Wide Web Consortium's HTML5 validators, which was some reassurance that the code will render correctly on most devices. I obviously can't take credit for writing the scripts themselves, but I was able to at least successfully implement them. To this day, the files are still available on Dynamic Drive's site and are free to use, provided credit is given in the code per their guidelines. If you are still coding websites via the old-fashioned way, using static HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, without any external database or content delivery network, this will suit you very well. June 24th. Guinness isn't that bad. You're darn right it's not. Guinness is fantastic. Amazing, even. Ireland wouldn't have made it for over 262 years if it wasn't. I wasn't into the taste of beer for my newly 21 days, until I discovered Guinness, and that could be considered a watershed moment. Did you know that Guinness can even provide preventative defenses for the heart? A study led by John Fultz at the University of Wisconsin in 2003 found that two or fewer pints of Guinness a day may work as well as an aspirin in preventing clots from forming. One additional and ironic thing of note, as of 2015, with the removal of fish bladders from the filtration process, Guinness is now considered vegan, if you're into that sort of thing. So I guess the old saying of, Guinness is good for you, may actually hold some water, or beer. Regardless, be sure to drink responsibly. But if you must, drink a Guinness for best results. Slange. And lastly this week, June 25th, stacking runes is really helpful. Couldn't quite escape this week without at least one League of Legends topic, I guess. 
Let's touch upon runes, a now-defunct augmentation mechanism for enhancing character stats before entering a game. At the time of this thing learned, runes could be purchased by simply playing the game and spending a certain category of rewards points called influence points to acquire them. One could then build a rune page comprised of up to 30 runes divided up into various categories and tiers. The end result was a set of buffs to your selected champion character that is applied before the game begins. Before starting a game, one selects a rune page that they built beforehand that applies to your character. As your summoner level increased, you had access to the more powerful runes until you unlocked them all at level 20 and higher. Over time, Riot Games adjusted the rune system putting in or taking out certain stats based on trends and balance needs. Classic runes met their end in November 2017 when Riot released League of Legends v7.22, where both the runes and the adjacent Mastery's augmentation systems were completely reimagined to what's in place today. Not to be a damper, but I am unfortunately unable to speak for the runes reforged system due to not having played the game since 2014. That's about all there is to say about legacy runes from a high level at least. At a glance, the stat adjustments may not feel like much, but in-game, it was one of those things where the small numbers really assist in small handy ways, and stacking certain categories of them were all the better. I found a YouTube video detailing the system in action, and if you want to see it, check out the show notes. And that about does it for the things that I learned this week, but let's talk about a few extra topics that were interesting. On June 22nd, Dropbox sent out an interesting security update and apology regarding a software bug that caused erroneous authentication behavior. Apparently, a small amount of users were able to get into accounts that they weren't allowed to have access to as a result of the bug. The email I received was a due diligence notification highlighting that a shared folder I was involved with logged a user logon that may or may not have been legitimate, and that if any strange files or folders appeared in said shared folder, I should be on the lookout. The email reiterated the apology and linked to the full blog post which went up on the 19th. I'm not sure if I'm impressed or disappointed in this email. Dropbox was a smaller company in those days and the wording of the email and blog post just sounds like an amateur mistake to me. I haven't used Dropbox in a long time, and anecdotally, I don't remember any further incidents like this, but it still makes you wonder sometimes. Final grades for the financial accounting class were posted on June 23rd. It was finally over. Luckily, the final exam grades were scaled and determined using a weighted average. I think this alone might have saved me, I just barely passed the class with a C-. C's get degrees, I guess. From here on out, the summer was going to switch to a much more relaxing vibe. Overall, I liked the variety this summer provided, and there would never be one quite like it given the circumstances. I'd relive it in a heartbeat, all things considered. That about wraps it up for this week. You have been listening to the Things Learned podcast. I write record, edit, and produce this show on a mostly weekly basis. If you're a new listener to this show, I want to thank you for checking this podcast out, 
and I encourage you to subscribe or follow if you enjoyed it. If you are a returning listener back for another week, I thank you again as always for continuing to listen to this. For all music credits as well as supplemental material related to the things learned this week, check out this episode's show notes. I'd appreciate if you would be so kind as to leave a rating for this podcast, especially if you enjoyed the show. Also, if you think you know anybody who might enjoy this podcast, go ahead and recommend this show to them. Until next time, enjoy the week, and be well.